The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. All right, with that, let's go ahead and look at 1 Corinthians 14. It's been a while um, in light of the trip to Africa and uh, Derek and JR filling in for me. and So now we're going to actually circle back to 1 Corinthians 14. Those of you who weren't here maybe three weeks ago, we looked at uh, verses 34 through 40 as we're wrapping up this discussion in 1 Corinthians 14. I had three points that I wanted to highlight in there. We, we got just the first one, and that was verse 34 and 35. And we noted how controversial that passage can be or has been historically uh, in light of a couple of phrases there where it says in verse 34 of 1 Corinthians 14, uh, the women are to keep silent in the churches. Women are to keep silent. So this is a command. It's an imperative. And many times that little phrase has been pulled out of its context to say all kinds of different things. We tried to put it in context. That was the point of emphasis. So if you're interested in what uh, the interpretation I gave was, that's already on the website of the church. And I put it in its context. And hopefully it made sense just by way of review for those of you maybe who weren't here or you forgot. Uh, boy, how do we deal with this phrase, let the women keep silent? Let the women keep silent. We noted, well, you can't really interpret verses 34 and 35 without starting at verse 29. So the immediate context is 29 to 35. And 29 to 35 is specifically talking about protocol or procedures in the local church for those who are going to stand up and speak prophetic words in the service. And here is the order. Here's the protocol. Here's the decorum. Here's the procedure. Can't have 17 people all at once talking, saying, I'm a prophet, and here's what God said. Paul puts restrictions on the process, saying no more than two or three are to speak at any given time. And we also, so that's what the whole context is, is about prophets speaking in the local church with spontaneous direct revelation they got from God. That is the context from 29 to 35. And we noted verse 34, it says, the women are to keep silent. That phrase, keep silent. So the women are to keep silent. And we also noted last time that in verse 30 is the admonition at the end of verse 30 where it says, keep silent. Exact same phrase, and that's not in reference to women. That's to people in the church. So it's not just telling women to keep silent. It's anybody else that shouldn't be speaking. Verse 30, keep silent. And then uh, verse 28, we also noted there's that phrase again, keep silent. That's the men in the church. So it's not just women are told to keep silent. Women are told to keep silent. And it wasn't just women. It were wives. That's the context. He goes on to say the wives. So it's not talking about every woman in the church. And it was wise with respect to those who were questioning their husbands who spoke up and gave a prophetic word from the Lord. And the wife of that prophet or the one who gave a prophecy wasn't supposed to be questioning and interrogating their husband publicly in front of the whole church, demeaning her husband. Don't do that to your husband. Talk to him, ask him if you want to learn about his prophecy that God gave him. Talk to him about it when he when you get home. That's exactly what it's talking That's the context. Uh, so I think we made that, hopefully we made it clear last time. So uh, God tells other people to keep silent as well, not just the women. And so let's move on. Now we can address uh, verses 36 to 40. Going back to the outline that we had there. The title of the sermon, this is part two, is Women, Prophecy, and Tongues. This passage isn't just about women. Many times it's, we're made to think that it is. 
it's women. Actually, the, the main emphasis is prophecy in tongues. As a matter of fact, all of chapter 14, the main theme is prophecy in tongues. Uh, just by way of reminder, verse 1 of chapter 14, Paul said, Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual spirituals, but especially that you may prophesy. So prophecy is the topic of verse 1. Tongues is the uh, subject of verse 2. He talks about both of those the entire chapter. He concludes talking about prophecy in tongues. If you look at verse 39, therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. So those are the bookends. What is Paul talking about in 1 Corinthians 14? It's not women. It is prophecy in tongues in the local church on a Sunday morning in the public assembly, the way it's to be done orderly after a biblical model, contrary to the way the Corinthians had been doing it, utter disorder, utter chaos, self-centeredness, exhibitionism, and not edification for the church. And so that is the main issue that Paul is dealing with very clearly. And yes, he does give a word to some very specific women with respect to the protocol when prophecy was being given. This is prophecy that was direct revelation before the New Testament was fully written, fully finished, fully canonized, last book being the book of Revelation that John the Apostle gave us in about the 90s, 95 A.D., when he told us everything about the future, how it's all going to end, the conclusion and the crescendo to all of history according to God's plan, and even eternity is the book of Revelation. We have that. So today we have prophecy. Do we have? Do I believe in prophecy? Absolutely. Do I believe we have prophecy today? Yes. It's inscripturated in our Bible, and that's what Peter calls Scripture. He calls it prophecy. That's direct revelation from God. Now written instead of spoken. Permanent for us now. And then even Revelation in chapter 1 and chapter 22 calls Scripture prophecy. So yes, we believe in prophecy. I don't believe there's ongoing prophecy today. There's finalized prophecy in the Bible. That has been actually the historic position of the church for 1900 plus years. So it's not novel or new. Uh, But now going back to the context, now that we looked at the women and the wives and uh, their role what they're not supposed to do to their husbands who are giving prophecy in the church. Paul goes on to give a summary statement, verses 36 to 40. I've broken that up into two. And so looking at your handout there, women, prophecy, and tongues, part two. Point number one was the propriety for wives in the corporate worship service. Um, so that's what we talked about last time, and it's, it's submission. It's honoring their husband, and that is the husband who spoke the word of prophecy. It could have been an elder in the church. It could have been a pastor, teacher or whoever it was that God chose to use. Uh, So it was submitting to, honoring, respecting the role of your husband publicly in the church and talking to him at home. So the propriety for specific women in the church, which brings us to point two, and that's verses 36 to 38, the authority of Paul over corporate worship. The authority of Paul over corporate worship. Let's look at verses 36 to 38. This is really a summary statement. Now that he's wrapping up, chapter 12, 13, and 14, which all went together. 12, 13, and 14 of Corinthians, he's talking about spiritual gifts and how the Corinthians had abused spiritual gifts primarily from their wrong attitude. They were doing it with a lack of love. They were doing it to be showy. They were emphasizing the wrong gifts. They were even employing gifts in the wrong manner to edify self. And so Paul has dealt with all of that. And here's his summary statement. Verse 36, he says, And now, actually, he goes back to a a rebuke, the Corinthians. There was a problem with some of the Corinthians. Mind you, Paul evangelized in Corinth, saw some get saved, Acts 18 tells us. He began to build on that nucleus of believers. He stayed there. 
even though he was getting harassed, he was getting persecuted, his life was threatened, he felt like bolting, then God actually had to appear to Paul in a vision, in a dream, saying, Paul, don't leave the city yet. You're, you're not going to be killed here. There are many, many of my people are still in the city that need to be saved. Stay. And so he did for out of obedience for a year and a half. And he ended up being their pastor for a year and a half. He started this church. Then he went to plant other churches. And over the course of about two or three years, many, several, at least, influential people in Corinth began to turn on Paul, question his authority for illegitimate reasons. And then a gossip chain began that began literally to undermine Paul's ministry as the founding pastor, but even more unbelievable, as an apostle of Jesus Christ. So much so that some members in the Corinthian church were bad-mouthing Paul to the point they totally dismissed him. Well, he's not as powerful as Apollos or Peter. After all, you know, he wasn't one of the original 12. He was a Johnny-come-lately. That's really some of the criticism that was going on. Paul actually had to defend himself. That's what this, and so early on, Paul confronts their arrogant spirit and attitude. So that's why two times in 1 Corinthians 4 we saw it. He says there's a spirit of arrogance here that's scary. And then in chapter 5, point blank, he says, some of you have become arrogant. And he addresses this again in chapter 7 at the end of the chapter. He addresses it again in chapter 8, verse 1. He addresses the arrogant spirit again in chapter 9. And now he's going to do it again in chapter 14. It's something he keeps coming back to, trying to remind them, I have, yeah, I'm just a human being, but I've been commissioned by Almighty God as an apostle of the church to give divine revelation. I, I'm a spokesperson for Jesus Christ. Some of them weren't getting that. And so that's what we see in 36 and 37. Now that he's dealt with three chapters of how they should proceed with spiritual gifts, listen to what he says. Was it from you, the Corinthians? And he has two rhetorical questions. They're a wee bit sarcastic and they're meant as a rebuke. And they demand the answer, no, Megenita, absolutely not. Because, again, he's confronting their arrogant attitude, their arrogant spirit. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth? Right? I mean, you Corinthians, some of you, are so arrogant. You think you know it all and you're puffed up. And I'm afraid several of you are just going to be dismissive of everything that I'm in putting in this scripture that I'm writing to you that you're going to just blow me off. And you don't listen to what mandates or... Revelation has been given to other local churches. That's why he kept saying in, in this chapter, as in the other churches, as in the other churches, as is the custom in the other churches. It's standard. This is God's requirement of all churches. And so he says, did the word of God, did uh, divine revelation find its origin in you? Well, of course not. The answer is no. But that's how some of them are coming across. What is the origin of the word of God? It's from the very mind and the mouth of God. That's 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed. And literally, scripture finds its origin in the mind of Almighty God, who used human beings through the power of the Holy Spirit to write it down and to ensure it is exactly what God has said. And so this is a rebuke to the Corinthians uh, of their wrong attitude. They're arrogant. And then uh, he asks a complimentary question that was rhetorical for a rebuke. Or has it come to you only? Does God only speak to you guys? You're proud of all your prophets and your word of knowledge and your word of wisdom and your tongue speaking as though God is giving only the Corinthian church direct revelation. That's what he's saying. Verse 37. If anyone thinks he is a prophet, if anybody here in this local church here at Corinth thinks that he is indeed a true prophet, And if anybody thinks that they are spiritual 
then let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. So again, he's reminding them, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ, as he said in chapter 1, verse 1. I have the Spirit of God, as he said in the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He is commissioned by God to write this. This isn't his opinion. This is the word of Jesus Christ. This is the commandment of God. And so, again, it's a, a, a needed reminder to curb and restrain their arrogance about their spiritual pride. And reminding them, I am an apostle because God has commissioned me to be so. And the foundation of the church was laid upon the apostles. The doctrine that we have and believe was given to the apostles through Jesus himself. Verse 38, another warning. But if anyone does not recognize this, in other words, if anybody here at the Corinthian church doesn't recognize my authority as an apostle, uh, that that is dangerous. Not only dangerous, it's damning. It's damning to your soul ultimately in the in the long run. If it doesn't change, if there's not repentance, if there's not softening, if anyone disregards the word of the apostle Paul, especially what he has put in writing in the name of the Lord, is dangerous and damning. If it is rejected, dismissed, undermined, explained away. But if anyone does not recognize this that I speak as an apostle, then he or she is not recognized. You're not going to be recognized by God. NIV, I think, puts that in the future tense. You will not be recognized. In other words, at the judgment, if you persist in this attitude of undermining apostolic authority, then it's not going to be good. God will judge you ultimately for that, for dismissing the word of God as given through the apostles. So it's a very stern warning. Like I said, he already two times in uh, chapter 4, he called them arrogant. Chapter 5, he called them arrogant. Here, it's just a blatant rebuke. Check your attitude. And if you continue this way, you're going to find accountability directly from God the judge. That's what this means. Then, well, you would think, wow, the Apostle Paul has spoken and he's cracking the whip and he's even coming to town. (laughs) Should I bring the rod? Should I give you a spanking when I get there? He's even threatened them earlier. What's your attitude going to be when I get there as the founding apostle of this church, the spokesperson of God? And it is amazing to me that, you know what, it actually doesn't get any better. Because you go to 2 Corinthians, so which takes us a few years later in the future in the history of what happened in Corinth, and it just became worse. So those seeds of arrogance that Corinthian Christians had towards Paul, it got worse and grew worse until they utterly, some people just totally uh, rejected the Apostle Paul, uh, continued their gossip, maligning him categorically, uh, and it just turned into a ball of fire. And that's what the whole book of Second Corinthians is about, is Paul basically defending himself and his ministry. And it almost seems hopeless uh, by the time you get to the end of Second Corinthians. And then you wonder, whoa, whatever happened to the church of Corinth? And then it just kind of went into non-existence, historically speaking. They got exactly what God warned them of. So it's, it's very sad, a very sad case study, but a reality. But uh, what's the takeaway for us? Well, on point number two, the authority of Paul over corporate worship is his apostleship, his apostleship. Uh, Paul had authority. It was delegated authority. It was authority from God. Uh, everything he said and spoke wasn't inerrant, but what he wrote down in Scripture through the power of the Spirit was authoritative and inerrant and is still binding on us today. So our attitude towards Paul needs to be the same today that it should have been 2,000 years ago for those people who knew him. We need to recognize the Apostle Paul as a representative of Jesus who wrote Scripture exactly as Jesus wanted it, 
through the preservation of the Holy Spirit so that the Bible is the inspired word of God. And our attitude as Christians needs to be that it's not just authoritative, it is authoritative. But in addition to being authoritative, the Bible, the word of God is inerrant. It is without error. God doesn't make mistakes. It is his word. That needs to be our attitude. And that's being drastically challenged today as it has been throughout church history. It's being challenged today in the evangelical church like I haven't seen in my lifetime. Scary. And there are evangelicals, quote, quote, and there are evangelical uh, scholars and Bible teachers and pastors and professors at seminaries and Christian colleges who call themselves evangelical and even say that they believe in inerrancy who are taking direct shots at the Apostle Paul, saying he is wrong. I know this. uh, I'm entering my 10th year at the Cornerstone Seminary, where I've been privileged to be teaching there, uh, pastors in Northern California. Thoroughly love it and enjoy it. Whatever class I'm teaching, we are reading current material in the evangelical world on that topic. We're actually interfacing and interacting with the best of the well-known scholars around the country on various topics who claim to be evangelical. And it is frightening, just so you know, what's out on uh, the line out there of what's being pumped out and produced by many evangelicals today who are literally saying that the Apostle Paul was wrong, even in Scripture. I've confronted this recently by by many. So it's, it's kind of scary. So this is a good reminder for us. The Apostle Paul, he's an apostle used by Jesus. What he wrote is scripture. It is authoritative. It is inerrant. We need to bow the knee. It is the very word of God, and we need to submit and obey appropriately. And that is good. That will please God. We can't compromise on that. Uh, A recent trend that's being accepted more and more in evangelicalism, and I've had it told to my face by a few Bible teachers, scholars, seminary professors, that the Apostle Paul was wrong in Romans chapter 5 when he said that sin entered the world through Adam. That's what it says. And they are writing and they are teaching and they are saying, well, actually, that's not correct. Paul was limited in his knowledge. He didn't have modern-day science. That's He was doing the best that he could, but he spoke in ignorance and in error. And that's actually not true. Sin didn't enter the world through a man named Adam for whatever reason. One reason is because an Adam guy never existed in the first place. This is what some evangelicals who say they believe in inerrancy are saying. That's a direct attack on the Apostle Paul. So it's just as damning and dangerous as it was 2,000 years ago. And it's not to be taken Lightly, it's attacking the very veracity of the word of God of Scripture. By the way, which Peter says, I love this verse in Peter, where he says that you, if you're a Christian, you, me, you've been born again by the living word of God. Isn't that amazing? How did you get saved? By God, by Jesus, by the Spirit, by the gospel, and also by the living word of God. The truth of Scripture is what helped liberate. That's what God used to save our soul. Scripture, uh, The word of God. So uh, we need to protect the word of God, defend the word of God, speak out for the word of God, and warn people uh, who try to undermine it, either knowingly or unwittingly, that they're walking a very dangerous line in doing that. And it's creeping more and more into the church, and we need to safeguard it. So that's the practical takeaway for us. Uh, The authority of the Apostle Paul needs to be acknowledged today. I remember a discussion I had. um, It was a lively discussion. It was a fellow who believed that we had apostles today. Like, like real life apostles, and his pastor was an apostle, and I don't even know the guy's name. I said, "Really? Wow! That's, how, how do you determine whether a guy's an apostle?" Or not? And he said, "Yeah, you probably don't believe there are apostles. See, and that's the difference. That's why our church is a healthy church, and yours probably isn't, because we have an apostle at our church." And he knew his name. I said, "Well, that's not true. We have apostles at our church." Uh, really? I said, "Yeah. There's Paul. He was pretty good, wouldn't you say? He's probably better than your apostle, by the way. Uh, we got Peter. He was an apostle. He's at our church." 
Uh, he speaks uh, all the time. Uh, and we got all kinds of apostles. John writ, wrote five books out of the New Testament. So, yeah, we got apostles at our church, too. So don't miss uh, peg me there. He thought that was interesting. Oh, okay, yeah. Hmm. But your apostles are dead. No, they're alive in heaven. They're actually uh, glorified. They're smarter than your apostles. Oh, I better stop talking. Okay. Have a nice day. But anyway, so we believe in apostleship and apostles, and they reign, or they uh, have given a wonderful gift to the church. So uh, Paul, again, is talking about corporate worship. So the authority of Paul over the corporate worship service, his apostolicity needs to be recognized in the byproduct of Scripture, the 13 epistles that he wrote. You can read them knowing it's the very word of God. Let's go on to point number three. Uh, So I talked about the propriety of women in the church, the authority of Paul in the church, and now the priority of God in corporate worship. The church, when we gather, and that's his uh, major conclusion in verse 39 and 40, specifically wrapping up this topic of about tongues and prophecy in the corporate worship service. It says, therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy. Well, that's exactly what he said in verse 1. Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spirituals, especially prophecy. And that's exactly what he said at the end of chapter 12, verse 31. Earnestly desire the greater gifts. And then he goes on to tell us what are the greater gifts. Well, it's prophecy. Prophecy is greater than tongues. That needs to be a priority in the church. And we've already explained why prophecy was greater in terms of a gift than tongues. And so this is his summary reminder uh, the priority of God for corporate worship. Uh, therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, which you haven't been doing. You've been showcasing tongues, and illegitimately so. That needs to be balanced. But by the way, don't take away the idea that I am saying that tongues is not a legitimate gift, says Paul. That's why he needs to emphasize for the second time in verse 39. He says, do not forbid speaking in tongues. But don't get me wrong. Just because in chapter 13 when I said that Love is the greatest priority. And that if you're speaking in tongues without love, it's nothing. From that, I'm not saying don't speak in tongues. I speak in tongues. I wish you all spoke in tongues, says Paul, 1 Corinthians 13. So here's the balance as he's bringing about his summary conclusion. Seek the greater gifts, the gifts that edify the most people. Yet at the same time, if God wants to use the legitimate gift of speaking in tongues in the corporate assembly, then do it according to the stipulations that I laid down through the Spirit earlier in this section. And the greatest summary point of all, verse 40, but all things must be done. Here it is. No matter what you do, this is like a parallel to 1 Corinthians 10.31, which we already saw. Whether then you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink or do spiritual gifts, do it all to the glory of God. He's saying the same thing here. But all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. Because they weren't doing things Orderly. It was chaotic. It was wild. It was out of control. It was frenzied, and it was an embarrassment to the onlooking world and other people. There needs to be order. There needs to be planning. There needs to be protocol. There needs to be restraint and boundaries and guidelines and reverence and deference and order. And after all, who's the greatest audience in a corporate worship service? It's Almighty God. It's our Holy God. It's the Holy God that Moses, who was a friend of God and spoke face to face with God when Moses entered the very presence of Almighty God. He had to remove his sandals because where he stood was holy ground. It's also true when you come and gather as a people before our holy God. It is one of order and it's also of reverence. He's the audience. 
He is the seeker, according to John chapter 4. So all things corporately, when you come to a worship service, must be done properly. And Scripture lays down stipulations of what is proper. And you need to do it in an orderly manner. And that entails everything that he just said for the last three chapters. Because that pleases God. So point number three, the priority of God in corporate worship is reverence or order or pleasing him. As Paul says, his greatest ambition is pleasing the Lord. And that needs to be our priority. That needs to be our attitude when we're coming to church. That's hard to get into our mind as we're coming sometimes uh, in light of the the issues going on in life, family life, and what's going on at work, and your car that breaks down or runs out of gas or the heat or the cold or whatever, and you're distracted. And really, are we coming to church thinking, my greatest desire this morning is, and my greatest ambition, says Paul in Corinthians, is to please him in corporate worship service this morning? Well, that's a struggle, isn't it? That is a struggle, but that's what God desires, and that is indeed what pleases him. So these are all very practical for us, that women and men have specific roles that need to be honored. Uh, we need to continue to submit to and revere God's word because you can't separate God's word from God. You can't. That's a false dichotomy. It came from him. It's a revelation of him. The only way that we know him is through his word in terms of his specifics. So we need to stand... Uh, with respect to the authority and inerrancy of God's word. And then finally, we need to maintain the right priority when we come and worship together, and that is reverence for our wonderful God, our blessed creator, our dear Savior. Now, with that, let's go back, and I want to kind of do a an excursus or an appendix or an addendum or whatever you want to call it, um, a footnote in light of point number one where we talked about women because that passage is so frequently used. Let the women keep silent. And we showed the weaknesses of the way that was abused and has been abused throughout the church. I do want to talk just briefly of some things regarding women from God's point of view, a biblical point of view, and also women in the church. It's a pertinent question. It's important. A lot of debate about it. So that's why I put at the bottom of the handout, women in the word. Um, Just some real basic foundational truths that God has given about women in the word from the Bible, from Genesis all the way to the New Testament. And so I wrote most of the ones down uh, there, A through J, and I want to look at a few of those. So what does the Bible say about women? What what can women do and not do in church, in a Bible study, in the corporate worship service at the local church? That's an issue we need to face in our area here in Northern California. Because you got, I mean, you don't need to go too far where you have churches that have women elders or women pastors. That's pretty common in our area. And then here at GBF, we don't have any women that are elders. Why is that? Is that because we are um, chauvinistic and we don't like women and we have an inferior view of women? Or is there another reason? I'd say it's a, it's a biblical reason. Some would accuse the Apostle Paul of being uh, anti-women because most of the passages we're going to look at and quote in the New Testament are from Paul, like in the one Pastor Bob read earlier from 1 Timothy 2, where it says, I want women to be modest and dress a certain way and behave a certain way, and they're not to exercise teaching authority over men. And then it's not uncommon to pick up a commentary by an evangelical scholar that says, well, uh, you know, that was cultural. That was in Paul's day. Women weren't allowed to do anything, but it's different today. After all, we had the 1960s and the feminist movement. And so women can do whatever they want to today and even in the church. And they just totally dismiss the context of the Bible with different reasons. Or here's a common one. Get this. Say, well, you know, Paul, he was misogynistic. He was a misogynist, not a massage therapist, but a misogynist, whatever that is. 
had to look that up in the dictionary. That's uh, a guy who hates women. And really, evangelical, Bible-believing Bible teachers who say that Paul actually uh, hated women for whatever reason, and maybe it's some Freudian thing that he had with his mom when he was three and his older sisters, but when he grew up, he never got over it, and so he's not too fond of women. And so when you see these disparaging comments in the Bible, uh, that's coming from Paul, that's not from God, and so you can just dismiss it today. That's dangerous because Paul was an apostle. He wrote by the power of the Spirit, Scripture. Scripture is without error because it is God's word. So there needs to be a different answer than that. So that just kind of sets the context of the questions and the debate that rages in the evangelical church today. But let me just highlight a few passages in conclusion of some basic things that God said about women and men, in contrast, and their basic roles. Uh, Derek did spend an entire sermon talking about the roles of men. And by the way, I went home with some bumps and bruises from that sermon, Derek. Thank you very much. Um, It was convicting. It was a great reminder. Um, So just the first passage by way of reminder, uh, men and women, Genesis chapter 1, God said, let us make man in our image, in verse 26 and 27. And it says that God made humanity in his image, male and female, in the image of God. So from the very beginning, in terms of creation, man and woman are equal before Almighty God by virtue of creation, with the same inherent dignity and value as spiritual creatures, yet with different roles, and we see that in chapter 2. And this is what's being taken to task today in our culture and has been for probably the last 50 years here in America, trying to just literally eliminate very distinct roles that God made for men and women. But Genesis 2 is unchangeable. It says that God created the first man out of the dust of the earth, verse 7 of Genesis 2, and then God put him in the garden to tend the garden in verse 15. And then God saw that man was alone, and so it was not good for man to be alone, verse 18. And so here's the key in verse 18. God said, I will make him a helper suitable for him. I will make the perfect complement for Adam. I will make uh, a helper or the complement who will be a helper and an aid and a blessing and fulfill him. And she shall be woman. She literally will complete the man in marriage. So that's one man, one woman together in marriage, and that's been God's plan that has never changed despite what uh, Supreme Courts and those judges might say. It's very clear. So here God established the rule that the wife was intended to be the complement and the helper to the husband. So for you, wife, from a godly point of view, a biblical point of view, ask yourself, routinely evaluate yourself, am I being a help or a hindrance to my husband in any given area? But that's the basic word of verse 18, to be a helper. And by the way, it's the perfect complement. One man, one woman, as God designed. And that reflects the fullness, actually, of even God's character. Uh, But that uh, beautiful, sinless role was undercut in Genesis chapter 3, as we know, from the curse and from sin. And so the challenge for women since the time of the fall was verse 16, uh, where God said, as a result of your sin and pain, uh, you will have childbirth. By the way, women are the ones who are supposed to be giving, having babies. Men don't have babies. That's biblical, that's clear. Let me say that again. Women are supposed to have babies, not men. Modern technology and the sinfulness of man is trying to challenge that, by the way, within 20 years. I don't know, if are you reading the headlines? In 20 years, they think they want to be able to have a man produce a baby and give birth? Yeah. Uh, What's next? But anyway, God said, no, women shall be the child bearers, uh, but there's going to be a challenge there because... In pain you shall bring forth children, yet your desire or your lust will be for your husband. 
Uh, now, because of sin, you're going to have an ongoing, constant, nagging desire to undermine your husband and his leadership, and he will revolt, and then you will have a challenge and a battle and sin and friction in your marriage relationship, and that can only be overcome by God's grace in the gospel. It's clearly up front in Genesis chapter 3. Moving along, uh, the role of women in God's desire. Uh, we could go to Proverbs 31. I'm not going to go there and read the whole thing. But if you're a, a woman and you know the Lord and you want to please God and your greatest heart's desire is, God, I want to please you with my life. What kind of woman should I be? Give me a model to see what it looks like. I would I would direct you, if you're a woman, to Proverbs 31, the entire chapter, uh, the first 20-some-odd verses there. Because that is the most uh, graphic, beautiful portrait of a godly woman. And she is diverse. She is complex. Uh, yet it is clear in terms of her godliness and some of the things that stand out aren't her words that she's speaking or spewing, but her godly behavior, her industry, her dignity, her purity, her service to others is really what is showcased in that beautiful portrait of a godly woman. So uh, Proverbs 31 is clear, and that's in the Old Testament, of what a woman is to be. And by the way, her base of operations is her home. She does work. She works hard. But her base of operations and her priority is the home. It is the home where her husband lives, the home where her children are, uh, and that is by God's design, which is also reaffirmed in the New Testament. Um, and then specifically in verses 26 to 28, when I put there on your handout there, some things that women are called to do, they're called to compliment their husband, they're called to be child bearers, and they will, they're blessed if they do in 1 Timothy 2.15. They are called to nurture the children if they have them, uh, Titus 2.5 says that they are called to maintain the home. I want to go there real quick. Look at Titus 2. This is one of the ones that I wanted to actually read. In we preached through Titus, and we noted that Paul actually talked about each demographic in the church body. Old men, young men, old women, young men, children. Uh, briefly stating what God's expectation was for each one. This is just by way of reminder. And for the women at the end of First Timothy, Second Timothy, then you go to Titus chapter 2. The older women are to, one of the things they're supposed to do is disciple the younger women and encourage the younger women, especially here it's the younger wives. Younger wives need to be encouraged, ladies. Well, what do they need to be encouraged about? Well, they need to be um, encouraged to, verse 4, so that they may encourage the younger women or disciple the younger women, teach the younger women to love their husbands. Loving your husband in a biblical manner doesn't come intuitively. There are biblical guidelines of how to do it in the spirit. Mature women need to teach younger women what that is. Also to love their children. Verse 5 is very important. Uh, older women are to teach younger women to be sensible. That, things, that means think clearly. Get a hold of your emotions. Don't live your life by your emotions. That's the Greek word in verse 5. And also, right here, to be workers at home. If you're married and you have children... The priority of the wife and the mother is to be at home, not just sitting there doing nothing on the couch watching Oprah or soap operas. It's to be active and productive like the Proverbs 31 woman at home. It's her base of operations. It's a, a beautiful place. It is a place of refuge for the family, for the husband, and even for uh, guests that are invited out of hospitality and taught to be kind and being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God may not be dishonored, respecting and Submitting to your husband is something that pleases and honors God. So that's Titus 2, maintaining the home, especially if you're married and have children. Uh, Acts chapter 9, if you're a woman, 
verse 36, this, this woman of God was commended for her service that was ongoing and continual and maybe for decades, a woman in the church, and she gave her life to the church in service to the saints and helping the needy. An amazing, very important ministry that's valued even today by God in the church and in the world. Uh, women should give themselves to learning the word. That's First Timothy 2. Pastor Bob read that earlier. There's a command there, and it's clear. It says it contrasts the role of men and the role of women. And, and to the women, it says, I want women to be modest in how they conduct themselves and even in how they dress and how they speak. And in the public assembly, they are not to be teaching with an authoritative role over men in the church. They can teach women. They can teach children. They can teach in other contexts. But they're not to be the preachers is the main thing in the church. But it, it also talks about their role at home and then gives the reason why, because of the order of creation all the way back to the Genesis story. And also, Paul doesn't just say you can't do anything. He says, let the women learn. That was liberating in Paul's day for him to say that. Let the women learn, because in many cultures in that day, women weren't allowed to learn and be educated. And Paul says, no. They are made in the image of God just as much as anybody else. They need to grow in their faith. They need to, be, they need to have the right to learn and to grow in Christ and learn the word of God. So that's actually a liberating statement in 1 Timothy 2. Uh, Titus 2, we already looked at it. Uh, women are to be given over in the church to discipling other women. Monumental. I, I've been here nine years, and at times I've been called to disciple uh, or counsel, um, helping people. There are times where a woman needs help or a female, and I can give, I can assess and do a diagnosis and give what I think is a biblical answer. But sometimes I need an assist. I need a woman to come in and help me with the counseling for this this woman who needs help from a female point of view from Scripture. And so uh, this is very important. We need to have women counselors growing and learning in the church so that they can counsel and encourage other women in the church. It's absolutely vital ministry. Um, some would say that women aren't allowed to teach. I would say actually they are. That is two. Does they are to teach at least? Their children, and I think they can, by extension, can teach other children as well. Uh, Proverbs 31, that woman was noted for the wise words of instruction that came from her mouth, so she was always teaching. Her greatest students and audience is her family, starting in the home. So she can make, really, an eternal impact starting there. And that's one of the greatest privileges that a woman could have. Uh, in Acts chapter 1, it's not just the apostles that were gathering together, praying, waiting for Jesus to come said the women were there. I, I have a hunch there were more women in that prayer group than the men. That's just a hunch. You can see that in the book of Luke. These women, these faithful women, just following Jesus like an entourage wherever he went and providing for his food and providing uh, different things for him along the way, these faithful women, and wanting to be the first ones there at his resurrection, wanting to anoint and care for his body. And here in Acts chapter 1, there's a group of 120 people, and it says that was made up of women. It could be just a large percentage of those were faithful, loyal, reverent, Jesus-loving women whose prayers are just as efficacious to Almighty God as any man's prayer. And it is so important. The faithful prayers of the women. As a matter of fact, women in this church frequently tell me in the corner in my ear through an email, through a note, Pastor Cliff, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for your family. I'm praying for your marriage. I'm praying for your kids. I'm praying for your preaching. I'm praying for your study. I'm praying for your protection. I'm praying for your trip to Africa. I'm praying for whatever it is. I save all those notes, by the way. And I appreciate those prayers. And prayer makes a difference as we go to the throne of grace. 
And then also in Acts 18, I mentioned this last time, that based on 1 Corinthians 14 where it says, let a woman keep silent, that some would say that women are not allowed, and also 1 Timothy 2, women aren't allowed to evangelize men because they're not allowed to teach men anything. Really. It's a formal position that's held within some churches. And here you got an example in Acts 18 where uh, Priscilla and his husband, Priscilla is mentioned first for some reason most of the time there. Um, but they showed Apollos the more excellent way, which means he had a lot of the truth, but he didn't have all the truth, which means sounds like Priscilla kind of evangelized Apollos and gave him the fullness of the gospel. We already talked about Philip's four daughters who were prophetesses giving divine revelation. And we could have added that on here too, that God has used females for divine revelation all throughout history um, evangelizing. So those are just some of the highlights of how God has used women throughout history, and even some of these are relevant today of how women can uh, function in their home, in their local community, and specifically in the local church. And uh, to have a proper, healthy balance in any local church, it needs to be men and women serving shoulder to shoulder our Lord Jesus Christ, using the gifts that God has given them to do, all for his glory, because he is the main audience. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.